uh, racist bigots when they watch videos of the 1950s Birmingham, they write in the comments, oh, the, the area was good until the immigrants arrived, meaning the, the Pakistanis and the West Indians. The, but that is false. Cryptocurrency people invest. People have invested 60,000 pounds, 100,000 pounds. And those who are profiting, when they pull out what happens, the value of the cryptocurrency goes down and they never regain their investment. So that's a fake economy. Islam would not advocate the building of a nuclear bomb. And that shocks so many Pakistanis. Assalamu alaikum everyone. With me I have none other than Sheikh Asrar Rashid, the, the lion of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, I think you are famously known as. And for me, I think the, the big thing that I remember you for is that poison. You know Mashallah. that we're going to talk about that, Sheikh. Uh, but also, Sheikh, you you know you've written books. We've got these books here. Uh, Khizr from my team, uh, he uh, he got these signed by you, Mashallah. Islam answers uh, answers atheism. Ashar uh, Rashid, and then we've got navigating the end of time. So you've Mashallah, Sheikh, you've written books. Uh, you've studied. I think you spent some time in Damascus, right? Yes, Mashallah, and and you study and you teach these days in Birmingham. Yes, in Birmingham, yeah. Alhamdulillah. In the, Alhamdulillah. Institute, yeah. And then, and then I've, I've seen on YouTube, I don't think anyone can have missed them, if they've been watching Islamic videos, your debates with various different people. And I think, for me, honestly, the, the single standout moment of, uh, I think, the last 12 to 18 months of me watching YouTube was when you, had, you drank that poison. I thought that was just a you know, drop-the-mic moment. I would love to know, actually, if you can drink that poison... Because remember, guys, what Muhammad says, just drink the poison, get a date, it should help you. That's right, says that. Okay, date, can someone go and get a date? And also, can someone check if it is poison or not? Right, I think we should leave that, leave that there. Well, in reality, Hatun Tash should have drank that poison, it would have benefited her immensely. But instead, I drank the poison and had a few incidents with the stomach, but oh, really? alhamdulillah, I'm okay. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. No, I think it's brilliant. What got you into this whole debating thing at the start? Um, interlocuting with Christians and Salafis. Yeah. So in the 90s, uh, we were bombarded with Christian missionaries in these areas, and then also Salafi missionaries. And they would enter the masjid and ask us, where is Allah? Why do you place your hands like this in prayer? And that led to the whole uh, being, your mind being assaulted at a young age mm. with such type of questions uh, led me to study the deen of Allah and then uh, being able to provide answers. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I, I grew up as a, as a Hanif, I guess I still am a Hanafi. And you, you grew up getting taught that your hands are here and there's a certain way of being. And... And you're right, I think there was that wave where uh, suddenly you have the, the Ahlul uh, you know, ahl Hadith, if you want to think of it that way. People they say early Hadith. Early Hadith. People who were like very focused on the Nusus and almost like much more of a arguably literalist reading of certain Hadith. And, uh, and, and of course, now that you know, I've studied a bit more, and of course, Sheikh, you've studied, you, you understand that there's mo much more to life. So later when I went to Syria, I studied uh, with Sheikh Nuruddin Itr, uh, his book, Ilamul Anam, which is a commentary on Bulugh al-Maram of Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar. And he covers all four schools and he gives the adilla, the proof for each school. And you realize how broad the Sunni tradition is, where placing the hands, whether below or above the navel, is a non-issue. Raf al-Yadain is a non-issue. So even in 2016, when I had the debate with Abdurrahman Hassan, in the pre-debate discussion, some of my friends, they went with me and purposefully they were praying by doing Rafal Yadain, which shocked Imran bin Mansur and his cohorts that how can people accompanying Sheikh Asrar be doing Rafal Yadain? That's because we do not deem Rafal Yadain as a major issue. Mm. So yeah. within our company, there's people who follow all four madhabs, meaning people who follow the Hanbali school, people who follow the Maliki school, the Shafi school, the Hanafi school, even though the majority of us are Hanafi, there are people within our circles of knowledge who follow the other schools and there is no issue with that. Absolutely. So the, the real issue wasn't whether why you pray with the hands below the navel or above the navel. 
there are a few creedal issues which are the core issues which are the actual difference and sheikh so the, the, what was this debate on was it on the, these kind of issues and so that debate with abdurrahman was on at-tawassul wal istighatha right okay with the right, prophet right, right. sallallahu alaihi wasallam yeah. so he deems al istighatha with the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam as shirk al akbar right major polytheism meaning it takes a person out of the fold of islam mm. but the problem with that premise is that you would have to take out so many ulama from the history of islam out the fold of islam who advocated yeah. istighatha bin nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam it's a a clear violation of some of the nasus mm. of the companions Ali Muridwan who did do istighatha bin nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam after he passed away and thirdly it's also it has its roots in the uh, taimian uh, paradigm of differentiation of tawhid making categorization of tawhid rububiya and uluhiya so by making that distinction of uluhiya and rububiya uh, what that entails is that muslims today can have tawhid rububiya but they violate tawhid uluhiya which takes them out of the fold of islam when the standard ash'ari sunni uh, position is uh, the definition of shirk is very simple if you at-ta'addud fi dhawat you multiplicity of entities of gods yeah or multiple or ascribing god's divine attributes to a makhluq or God's divine actions to makhluq. So if someone doesn't fall into that, they do not fall into shirk. Yeah. So those ulama who advocated istighatha, they did not advocate multiple gods. They did not advocate the attributes of Allah being given to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and they did not advocate the divine actions of Allah being uh, ascribed to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So the position would have to go down a notch or two notches from a shirk al-akbar Abdurrahman should have advocated something else like a fiqh position. Yeah, what's his softer. yes, what's yeah. his fiqh position? If he had advocated a fiqh position, then the debate may have not even ensued. So some ulama for instance Zainuddin al-Iraqi, he says uh, rahimullah that al-istighatha bil awliya is not allowed, it's not permitted, but he says that as a fiqh position. Mm. But then the majority of the Shafi'i ulama they they contradict him. Mm. So all those majority Shafi'i ulama who say istighatha bil awliya is permitted, we do not deem them as being mushrikeen, polytheists. Mm. This would lead to declaring a large number of the ummah of yeah, the Prophet as uh, polytheists. So that was the backdrop of the debate. Many young people at the time, they may not have understood the nuances of the debate, but now as they grow up with time, they will realize yeah. the weakness of such a position and the after effects in in terms of how that position actually uh, violates principles of logic and principles of usuluddin and what not and and sheikh uh, you uh, you've grown up in birmingham uh, for i think most much of your life right yes born um, and bred yeah born and bred mashallah how um, how has and obviously we're we're a finance channel um, but I'd, I'd love to hear how was life growing up in Birmingham and also how have you found e the evolution of things like money and economics and you know social well-being as you as you've grown up over the last few years in the Muslim community. So Birmingham was capital of industry so growing up the road I grew up on was the road where Joseph Priestley had his laboratory and his laboratory tree and home were um, burnt down in 1791 by Christian rioters because he was a Unitarian Christian who advocated the supposedly the French Revolution. He supported the French Revolution. So these were monarchists burning down his laboratory. And that uh, is a historical moment in Birmingham history. In uh, where The laboratory they burnt down was the place where he discovered oxygen and where laughing gas was discovered. Oh. So laughing gas 200 years later is a drug for youngsters that they take now in, in balloons but many of them would not know that the site of the discovery of laughing gas was Priestley Road or Long Street where I grew up wow. uh, where Joseph Priestley was based that was farmland in those times up the road you have Lloyds Bank so the Lloyds family settled in Farm Park and the Lloyds family lived in my area so Sparkbrook wow. was 
owned by the Lloyds Bank uh, banking family. And uh, the, the entire surrounding area was uh, farming land owned by a banking family. So we grew up in that area, but many of us wouldn't, wouldn't have known that basic history. Or uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, Long Street Park, uh, near where I grew up, there was a statue of Thomas Atwood, a political campaigner from the 1800s, the first MP for Birmingham, or one of the first MPs from this area. So a historical area, Matthew Bolton, and the discovery of the steam engine, wow. Joseph Chamberlain. So that's the backdrop of us immigrants coming into, uh, well, my grandfather being the immigrant, but some people still maintain a, an immigrant mentality. But arriving firstly in the early 1900s, you had the Yemeni community uh, settling in Bosalith from oh, the right, late okay. 1800s. There was Sheikh Qasim, who was a Sufi. Uh, he was a um, deputy of a Sheikh Alawi, a Darqawi from Algeria. And he settled in Bosalith and he opened a Sufi Zawiya in Bosalith. So right. this was your first wave of immigrants. And then my grandfather arrived in the 1950s with all the Kashmiri uh, migrants who entered into Birmingham, Bradford, Yorkshire, all the mills. Post-World War. Post-World War, and he was also stationed with the British Army in Burma. So he fought wow. in Burma. And uh, after being stationed in Burma, then he came to Birmingham. So growing up in this area, as a child, I would see the rotunda, the rotunda building in town. You, could, you would be able to see the rotunda from my home in Birmingham. Now it's covered with buildings, but that's telling you about capitalism. So we're growing up in these areas, in the, in the heartland of Western capitalism. Birmingham is major in Western capitalism. You have uh, uh, British small arms, BSA, so everyone knows it as BSA Park, but what they will not know, BSA was the place where ammunitions were made to kill Africans. Wow. To, uh, so the, the Western man would make his ammunitions here in Birmingham and then export these ammunitions to the British army across the world to kill uh, Indians in India, or what they refer to as Indians, uh, to, uh, to kill uh, uh, people in Bengal, to people in Punjab, people in Africa, all of China, those arms yeah. were exported from uh, Birmingham. Wow. And then during World War II, just before we arrived, just before our families arrived, when Hitler uh, attempted to bomb various parts of United Kingdom, he obviously targeted Birmingham and Coventry. But when he threw his bombs on Birmingham, he was targeting the BSA factory, the British Small Arms Factory. Right, and a wind, a gust of wind blew the bombs away and the, the bombs landed on residential homes in Smolith. So Smolith was bombed away. So that's the history of the area before our arrival. So we come into this uh, industrial capital of the Western world, a major uh, arm of Western capitalism, a major appendage. And then we help in, in building up the city. So, so many bigots today, uh, racist bigots, when they watch videos of the 1950s Birmingham, they write in the comments, oh, the, the area was good until the immigrants arrived, meaning the, the Pakistanis and the West Indians. The, but that is false, because yeah. when our people arrived, the white working class, the white British working class, they had no good housing standards. The, the, the council housing that we have now, that didn't exist until the, the government, post-World War II government of yeah. uh, Attlee. And that government only introduced housing and the NHS because of political pressure, not because of some good will. Yeah. will. It's because of, in, in the past history, a, a lack um, of housing or a, a high taxation always led to revolution. So the people went, were not as dormant as they are today. Today, people are dormant. We're being taxed, uh, we, uh, inflation. We, have, we face all of this, but no one is protesting. No one is uh, causing a revolution. There's, there are reasons for that. But when King Charles II 
and King Charles I, every ch child has been controversial. Now we have Charles III, but King, Charles, <laughs> but King Charles I and King Charles II, when taxes were introduced, it led to revolution. I mean, mm. there was the beer tax, they even had the window tax, they even had uh, bedroom tax, they even had the Napoleon tax, they even had the Salahuddin tax. So all these taxations within Britain have been going on since the Doomsday Book, and the Doomsday Book was written in yeah. uh, post-1066. Britain has been taxed till the Day of uh, Judgment. But when our first wave of immigrants arrived, they rebuilt the city, they contributed to industry, uh, they contributed, uh, but they were cheap labor. Mm. So because they were cheap labor, uh, the people employed them, and they, the, the whites that were living in this area were actually Irish. They were not English. I see. So they were also migrants. They were they were uh, migrants from the potato famine. So the potato famine in 1846, from that time, you had Irish migrants moving into Britain. Their descendants today will think they are white English. So they live in Hall Green and Sullyol and all these areas, and they think they are English. In reality, if they go and check their ancestry, they would be Irish. Mm. And then you had the white flight where white people left these areas and a uh, whole wave of West Indian and Indian and Pakistani and Bengali people settled in these areas. So that's the enviro that w people like myself and yourself would have been born. Yeah. And then we, we become confused at birth because we're multilingual. Yeah. So as soon as you're born, your parents are speaking one language, your school is speaking another language. You go to madrasa and you read Quran in Arabic but it has its benefits because then you become trilingual. And then growing up in that environment, the, the people uh, tend to have an immigrant mentality in the sense of economic gain, that our purpose of life is only economic gain. And this is a negative mentality, but not as negative as the opposite mentality, which is the, the mentality of the younger generation, that when they need a cup of coffee, they ring they ring a coffee shop from home and the cup of coffee will cost 10 pound or 20 pound when the elder generation would have taught us and instructed us you just buy a jar of coffee for three pound and you can make a hundred cups of coffee yeah. so economically more viable the elder generation were, and they were able to buy a few homes around the inner city areas and and Sheikh, have you found that uh, that the as the generations have passed that Muslim, you know, Muslims have changed in terms of going from quote-unquote working class to middle class. Is that happening? Or uh, what's the trend that you're seeing in Birmingham? Well, I prefer the, the old Midbury, Kashmiri working class people because they had better etiquette. Mm. And for instance, you're my guest, you've come from London. When you, after we finish this podcast, it's my job to host you with food. Oh, exactly. But the new generation they go to a shop together, I will ring you for a meal and we'll go out for a meal and then I will expect you to foot your own bill. Mm. The old generation never had this. If I ring you for a meal, then I'm the one who will pay. Or you come to my house, you'll be hosted with tea and coffee. And, uh, but tea and coffee is useless before food. They say in Arabic, drinking tea, on an empty belly is like being smacked on the elbow. So the old generation had values. If someone arrived at their home, they hosted them. Uh, that stinginess with time, that stinginess with wealth was not there. Mm. So these are good qualities that the old generation had that the new generation must retain because these are qualities of Islam. Yeah. That uh, generosity, hospitality, so I believe those qualities are being lost with some of the new generation who become quote-unquote coconuts that they, uh, their skin may be, I know politically, uh, political correctness would be yeah. against that term, but I'm from Sparkbrook, we use those terms. If someone has skin, a brown skin on the outward and then inwardly he wants to maintain a kafir way of life. Uh, a kafir way of life would entail a selfish way of life. Mm. But we, our elder generation, they had community, a sense of cohesiveness. And what was causing that, Sheikh? Because like, I, I get that, I see that as well. And, and arguably, uh, I can't speak for you, but me and people like us are 
in that generation, I look at my parents, I think they're better people than me. Uh, what, what is, how can we fix that? What, how you on? fix that is uh, firstly by the principles of Al-Islam. Hmm. Al-Islam is our way of life. So everything is instructed to us by Al-Islam, the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu but also accompanying those elder people who had good akhlaq. This doesn't mean that it was a utopia. I'm not advocating no. that the, uh, the elder generation were uh, free from faults. They had some qualities that we should not lose. Hmm. We should uh, retain those good qualities. And uh, from those qualities, because we're discussing economy, was hospitality. So someone is your neighbor. The, if you remember in the 1980s, when your mother would make food, uh, they would fill a container with that food and they would say, go and give it out to the neighbors. So you would not give it to yeah. one neighbor, you'd give it out to a few neighbors. And how trends change with time, the white people at that time would say, your house smells of curry. And then now curry is the national dish of the UK. Yeah. So trends change with time. Today, you have an Indian prime minister. Tomorrow, you may have a Muslim and king. And Downing Street probably smells of curry at this point. Yes, and <laughs> tomorrow, you may have a Muslim king also. Inshallah. Inshallah. You hear it here first, folks. Maybe we already do, Sheikh. No, we judge on the outward. So if someone is a kafir on the outward, we say he's a kafir. If he adopts Islam openly, we declare him a Muslim. Accept him. So, Sheikh, I wanted to get into... Uh, capitalism and your research around the Islamic economy, Islamic Khilafah, and how all this fits together. But before we do that, I want to ask you, do you invest? What do you, what do you put your money? How do you think about your own money, your relationship to money? Well, I'll give you a summary of my relationship with money. Um, I'm not very good with money in the sense that um, if you gave me £100 to invest, I may not be so good at investing that money. But there are basic guidelines that everyone should know through Al-Islam by which they will know how to safeguard their money and have barakah in their money. There is a difference. Barakah is having blessings in the money. Yeah. And this is a concept that many Muslims have moved away from. So even if someone, their threshold of wealth is less, there will be more barakah in their money. For instance, a man may go home in the evening and he, he has meat for food, expensive food, but he's not satisfied. His belly is not full, or he may have a stomach problem afterwards. He doesn't save any money. He, he, he only has enough money just for that food. There's a lack of barakah in his money. But there may be another person who is earning money. When he earns the money, he buys lentils, he eats lentils, he's very satisfied with the lentils and he has savings left over, he can spend the money on other things. There's barakah in the money. When does barakah enter your wealth? Barakah enters your wealth when the money is halal. That mm. is the first principle. That today we have Muslim capitalists, people who live a capitalist way of life, that they look at profiteering before halal. They abuse other human beings in order to attain the money. So many businessmen, I, I deal with their problems here in the masjid. They will lie in order to attain money. They will make false promises. Um, they may steal money, but there will be no barakah in their money. They may sometimes invest in a business and the business fails. And the, the really, real reason for the business failing is because they were not honest in the first place. They do not make contracts. So the longest verse in the Quran regarding, is regarding trade. The longest verse in Al-Quran Al-Kareem is regarding trade. They uh, do not make contracts. They do not have witnesses for those contracts. And then they dispute afterwards. So these are basic principles by which I live by. Another principle of that is, if you do invest, never invest more than one third of your savings. So what will people do? They take out bank loans, mm. interest-based loans. They take money from other people. The business venture fails, then they, be, they are covered in what? Debt. They drown yeah. in debt. That's interesting, Sheikh. Is that, you're deriving that from the, some nusus or that's just a principle? <clears throat> some of these are from the nusus of the Quran and Sunnah. Others are guidelines given to me by ulama. Mm. So some, some of the ulama, they said to me, if you ever invest, invest in a business, Never invest more than one third of your savings. So if you have your own personal savings, one third of those savings. 
and never invest if you don't have the capital. Yeah. So if you don't have the strength mm. to invest, don't invest. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. That's really fascinating. So Sheikh, um, we uh, that makes a lot of sense. So you've laid the groundwork on how you think about personal finance. But what about the economy as a whole? You're working on a book right now on, uh, I think, the Islamic Khilafah as a whole, right? How how does finance has a role, have a role to play in that and economics? And where does that fit into that big picture? So the eco economic monster that we have today, previous to that, we had an economic organism, meaning the caliphate was an, an organism, an organic uh, system of uh, economy. Currently, what we have is an e economic monster. This economic monster goes against the, the natural order of economy. So the natural order that we have is, for instance, a man, he, he grows his vegetables and he sells the vegetables in the markets and then he gains money for that. There is a natural economy. So if there's, um, there's availability of vegetables, yeah. the person will sell the vegetables and then gain money. That's in accordance with what the ground is producing in terms of natural uh, vegetables. But today what we have is what, not a natural economy, we have a fake economy in the sense that uh, a person will not only have the vegetables, there will be so many hands involved in between those vegetables reaching the marketplace and that there is a fake economy in between. So when the natural order of an economy is not with the natural order of money, there is an imbalance in the economy. But capitalism doesn't recognize that imbalance. What capitalism does is boom for a while, and a while could be 70 years. So when you have construction in a certain area, people think, oh, there's so much construction, the, the economy is booming. Yes, it's booming, but later the bust will come mm. because the, the economy is fake, meaning people were happy when Birmingham city center was being constructed in the post-2003 war in Iraq. Of course, the money was coming from the oil in Iraq and the, the plundering of Iraq, but the economy may boom for a short while, but it's not based on the natural order of money and natural order of economy. In the sense, what do I mean by natural order of economy? The natural resources and the natural order of dealings that people have. And what do I mean by natural order of money? That the money is in accordance with the natural economy. If there's an imbalance of this, you have modern capitalism. So a fake economy. And then, yes, people are profiteering. Oh, what does that mean, Sheikh? When you say, uh, can you give us a sketch of fake economy or capital? Like, what does that mean in, in your... An opinion? example of that would be, uh, today you have uh, uh, this uh, digital currency. Cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency. Now, seven, eight years ago, when people asked me about cryptocurrency, I said, it's a scam. And at that time, People said regarding me, he's naive, he doesn't understand mm. economy. I said, it's better for you to invest in gold. Seven years later now, people are admitting that I was correct with regard to mm. that. Why? Because what I saw was a similarity between cryptocurrency and the pyramid schemes. In the 1980s and 1990s, they had pyramid schemes. People at the top benefited for a short period of time and then the entire system collapsed. That is what has happened now with cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency people invest, people have invested 60,000 pound, 100,000 pound, and those who are profiting when they pull out what happens, the value of the cryptocurrency goes down, and they never regain their investment. So that's a fake economy. That's an example of not a real economy. It's not real wealth. Real wealth is actual resources, where, where a person has real resources, not fake resources. So that's where we, we enter the domain of the modern currency, how currency is just printed by uh, what we refer to as fiat money, by government, by banks, bank, the Bank of England, and then how they play with the interest rate. So the interest rate was raised now for the 12th time. Yeah. Why is the interest rate being raised? Most people will not even understand why the interest rate is being raised. And similarly with the the, uh, the treasury in the USA, how the treasury post 1913 can print money at will. 
So that's a fake economy. It's not real economy. The, the order that was um, prevalent in the world prior to that was what the, the order of what real money, gold money, and uh, where people had gold and silver, which was real currency. And that real currency was measured in accordance with the real world economy, which was real resources, real uh, labor, even labor, if we can labor as a resource, real labor as opposed to what we have today. Very interesting. So your, uh, your, your view on fiat currency as a whole is effectively the same analysis as what you said for cryptocurrency, right? Because in crypto, in fiat currency, it's the same thing, really, that the people who control the force at the top, at the top they're the ones who... It's just running on confidence. Yeah, so the, 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 same le thing. the legal ruling, the fake ruling of fiat currency would be the following. <clears throat> in fiqh, you have a, an example of uh, wine turning into vinegar. Yes? So while it remains wine, it's wine, but it potentially can turn into vinegar. So fiat currency is similar. It's running at the moment. It's functioning because of agreements amongst governments, Bretton Woods and post-Bretton Woods, so they all agree on the US dollar and yeah. they all deal with their own currencies and then the floating currencies that we have in the world today and the market, they can exchange those currencies but there is always potential for the money to collapse. So like wine can turn into vinegar, fiat currency can collapse at any time because Agreed. it's running on confidence. It's, it doesn't have actual inherent value, unlike gold and silver. Mm. So in the Pakistani economy example, in the, when Pakistan was formed... But then, Sheikh, I would, say, I would push back on that and say, that, look, if we look into gold and silver, <clears throat> isn't it the same thing where you've got this £10 coin and it's imbued with value that human beings have associated with it in and of itself. It's obviously intrinsically worthless. And arguably, you could say the same thing for gold. It's in and of itself, um, sure, actually, gold has some uses, but in and of itself, the vast majority of the value ascribed to gold is uh, just because we like it. So that, if you go to the periodic table of elements, for instance, the periodic table of elements, you look at each element, and you value the element on certain attributes, uh, viability, how long, uh, uh, longevity, how long the material lasts, and you will conclude with which metal? Gold. So it wouldn't be paper. So the table of yeah. elements. So if you go back to the table of elements and we say, okay, we have a currency, we need a currency. In the old times, they use carry shells, different types of currencies. Which, which, uh, which element will we go by? You measure each element. If you do a correct examination, you will conclude with gold. So from the table of elements, gold is still at the top. Yeah. So, but again, I would say, I'd push back on that and say that, look, Sheikh, what a, I completely get that it's stable, it's easy to store, it's not reactive, all of that stuff. Uh, and, and so as a choice of things that we could go for on the periodic table definitely makes sense. But the, the, the point is that the value it gets is not because it's got those attributes in and of itself. The, the point is that the value it gets is because we like it. Yes, yeah, so the, there would be two responses to that. One, the one response would be what I mentioned with regard to the natural order of economy. Unlike paper money, we can print paper money at will, which mm. leads to inflation yeah. and then deflation. With gold, it goes with the natural order of economy mm. because gold is mined uh, at, a, at a rate where inflation rarely happens. So when the conquistadors went to South America, they arrived back into Europe with a, a large amount of gold, which led to inflation. But even then, the inflation is not like the type of inflation we had with paper money. So it's the least probable yeah. uh, of having what inflation, the type of inflation that we see with paper yeah. money. This is, and now, and this is, sorry, sorry for interrupting. This is really interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot myself. And, uh, and I get the argument that the, what we're doing is we're saying instead of money being created as, a, uh, as something from a printing press or from a government, 
instead we're shifting it to a place where it's not as uh, proliferous and it's, it's hard to control it in terms of it, you know, coming into existence. But the question I have is then, is that actually a good idea? Like we're, we're saying instead of uh, the Bank of England doing it, we're going to switch it to Ghanaian miners and to countries who are rich in gold. And, uh, and I have two questions with that. One is, fundamentally, is that, is that a good idea? And second, and is that fair? And secondly, uh, my question is that, and I was discussing with uh, some, uh, some of my friends in the city, and their, their point was that, look, when we decoupled from the gold, uh, Bretton Woods, yeah, um, I think it was, that was that it was then, and then also later on when you know I think it was the nineteen seventies, sixties or seventies, when there was like a full on decoupling. Nineteen seventy one. Yeah. So, so there was uh, the people in the city. Yeah. They would be against what I'm saying. Of course, yeah, of course. But I think the argument is interesting, which is that uh, they they say that since then you see this huge explosion of growth, and uh, and part of that is only possible when you decouple from gold. Uh, from gold. Now, and I've not really come to a final, personally come to a final conclusion on it, but I, I do see the value of both of those arguments. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts. So you've got 1925, Winston Churchill reintroduced pegging the British pound with gold. That failed. So in 1931, that was removed. It failed. But why did it fail? It's not because of gold. It failed because of a post-war, post-World War I Britain could not cope with going back to the original value uh, with gold. There, there are other reasons for that. And then John Maynard Keynes was one of the opposition to Churchill with regard to pegging the British pound on gold. He wrote uh, an entire article on that. You find it in the collected works of John Maynard Keynes. And then Keynes was one of the advocates of the, the Bretton Woods Agreement. But Keynes was not in total agreement with the US in terms of the US uh, being the standard for every other currency. Yeah. And then the US uh, dollar was pegged with gold. Yeah. Then you have... He, he, I think he proposed like a new currency entirely. I think he, he proposed something called the Bancor, uh, which is this like global currency that he wanted. Yes, yeah. because Keynes was uh, British, so he would want Britain's... Uh, uh, hegemony on the on the Interest, entire yeah, on, after, on yeah. the, in the world because Britain was facing a post-British Empire world so uh, and and the rise of America basically so then then you had 1970 and 1971 uh, where Nixon unpegged the US dollar and then from 1971 until today 2023 uh, this growth that they discuss this is what I referred to as the fake economy mm. And then, but what they will not mention is debt. How much has debt increased? Massively. Since 1971. Yeah. So that disproves the, the point. Additionally, how many crashes have we had? Meaning yeah. from Black Thursdays and Black Wednesdays and Black Mondays, I don't know yeah. how many, in 1988 and when Alan Greenspan became yeah. the, the head of uh, the Treasury and all these uh, facts that you find in literature. And then uh, additionally, the recessions, the number of recessions, yeah. the disparity between rich and poor. So yes, there is yeah. profiteering going on, but who is profiteering? 1% of the Western population, or 1% of the world's population. Yeah. Where is the, uh, the, the profiteering, uh, the distribution of wealth yeah. for the entire world, or for the, the, the poor of the world? So then you look at the ownership of corporations and ownership of uh, natural resources throughout the world, the majority of it in a, the hands of a minority. So the, the people in the city, and London city means the one mile square, they will be against what I am saying yeah. because what I am advocating is what Islam. Islam advocates what? Sure. Distribution of wealth. So in Islam, there is profiteering, but there is no marginal uh, gap, yeah. a huge gap so between the rich and poor. This is a really, a very, very interesting. So um, what they would say is that um, w this period has also uh, aligned with a period of mass prosperity. Actually, the, the standards of living for even the poorest have become much, much better 
than they were before, certainly in the West, but actually even globally, the, you know, the poorest, you know, we are actually reducing um, poverty and raising living standards. How, how I would respond to that, that is not because of distribution of wealth, that is because of the influx of technology. Mm. So different technologies have affected ways of life. Sure. So uh, the, the smartphone is a good example. Uh, there are people with smartphones in areas where there is abject poverty. So people mm. are f- afflicted with poverty, but a man may have a smartphone which will change some aspects of his living standards. Where uh, on a smartphone he can yeah. uh, m- make contact with people across the world and uh, have something dispatched to him by way of uh, mail or whatever. Yeah. Technology has changed the, the living standards, not distribution of wealth. Uh, they yeah. have the trickling down effect, sure. Adam Smith yeah. standard, uh, but that's, the trickling down is not so, uh, meaning the drops are not so big as they make it out yeah. to be. Agreed with that. And we, I want to talk about socialism because that's, I think, the other you know, fascinating corridor to go down here. But I want to come back to this about, because I've been thinking about this 1971 decoupling thing. And, and I agree with you that there's been this massive bur- burgeoning debt and this income inequality and a lot of dodgy stuff has happened, frankly, since then. But the same question arises, which is that, okay, um, we, we kind of are saying that we don't want the existing form of how money is created, which is in the hands of private banks and uh, central banks, but primarily private banks, fine, accept that. But um, what's the alternative? And, so yeah. the alternative, of course, we as Muslims will advocate the Khilafah as a, an alternative, but of course for the Western world that's not an alternative. But what as Muslims we are, we are doing is what is pointing out the faults in the system and presenting Islam as an alternative. Islam is not as a political system, Islam is never a political party. You don't go to the ballot box and vote Islam. Islam is a way of life. So we're advocating a way of life and a way of life is the way of life is Islam as opposed to a capitalist way of life. So the alternative is presenting Islam to people as a creed, as an aqidah in Tawheed of Allah. It starts from Tawheed of Allah because essentially these issues go back to spirituality. How? I'll bring it back to spirituality. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I am making on the earth a khalifa, a representative for the earth. What does that entail? the plunder of resources should not be done by the Khalifa. The distribution of wealth should be carried out by the Khalifa. And um, some of the Salaf, they mentioned the task of the Khalifa is to mint the coins, even to, to make the coins, the gold and silver coins, making sure measurements are correct. So if the, yeah. if the task of the leadership is to make the, the measurements correct, imagine these uh, paper currencies, Sukuk, they were known as in the old times, they were prohibited by the Khalifa, meaning paper checks that would be given out yeah. as IOUs. And even the, the, the pound notes have the, the bearer must be paid the sum of. So that would be stopped by a Khalifa who adopts Islam as a way of life. So Islam as a way of life, not just as a political system. We can't say Islam is a system. It's, mm. it's a way of life. So the, the alternative is Islam, but again, this enters, economy goes into the, the field of philosophy and then theology. Yeah. Because Western thought has been affected from Thomas Hobbes to all these uh, various philosophers you read about. They affected the Western mindset. Yeah, so absolutely. David Hume and Locke Kant and Locke and all these names and you read their works they have penetrated the, the western mind to the point that Christianity is finished and the, what we present now is Islam as an alternative which has a 1400 year tradition So Sheikh I want to get into the alternative but we let's go down that corridor now the socialism one because what uh, you were suggesting was that I think you were saying that Islam would have a better and fairer distribution of wealth is that what you were saying? Yes, so that does not entail um, a socialism or a Marxism or any of that. Uh, so if you start from the Communist Manifesto, the, the strange thing about Karl Marx was he was living in uh, Britain at the time. Whether he even visited a factory, 
to see the working standards. It's not proven. Mm. I mean, he wrote about the working yeah. class and how the working class were living. Uh, the, the man himself was not from a working class background, yeah. and he advocated benefiting the, the working classes. And then at home, I have a book, Trotsky has a, uh, we would say Risala, <laughs> he, has a, he has a book on uh, uh, addressing the, the, the masses to uh, uprise against, against governments and whatnot. This is not what Islam advocates. No. So for instance, you know, you're a rich enough, landowner. So Engels, Marx's friend, he was actually a factory owner. Yes. And he used to fund Marx. Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah. And um, let's say you're a rich landowner or a factory owner in Islam now. Yeah. What will happen? The 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 people, the Hisba, which is the uh, the the caliph's example of the the council or uh, uh, the uh, standards, trading standards, they'll come down. They'll look at the 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 how are you are treating your workers. The the workers will have hukuk rights. When those workers have a complaint, they go to the Qadi. And this is where Islam differs from capitalism and communism. In Western corporate law, how does a standard, and you're, you've, you've been a corporate lawyer, a worker, an employer, employee, needs to take his employer to work. It's a complicated method. He needs to go see someone like yourself. You'll have a high... Uh, standard of uh, fee, fee. Yeah. and it's complicated but in Islam it's very simple he goes to the district judge the Qadi with no cost and he simply complains and the Qadi will summon the factory owner and the factory owner if he has violated some of the hukuk of the worker then those vi those violations he must make uh, he must make uh, uh, amends, he must pay him, or uh, in some cases could even be flogged. So it's a very simple process. But but that is how Islam differs, even in its judicial process. Mm. So unlike capitalism and communism, where everything is divided from uh, the the judiciary system, the judicial system, the economic system and then you have everything separate in Islam no one is above the law of Allah even the caliph is not above the law yeah. of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so then secondly you would have to pay your zakat every year so the capitalist now is living in a uh, by the way the the corporation will not be an entity yeah so if you have uh, Starbucks like Saudi Arabia now has Starbucks but the Starbucks is an entity, yeah. and Saudi Arabia is not any Islamic state. Yeah. We don't use the word state, because Islam and state are incompatible. So we'd say it's not a, khilif, a khilafa. But it's governed by Muslims, but they have Starbucks. Starbucks in Islam should not be dealt with as an entity, Starbucks. It's individuals who own, the, meaning the shareholders are deemed yeah. as people who are responsible for the, the workers, responsible for the conditions of work. So you won't have what happens with the smartphones with, in China, where the, they have to place nets around the factories and then people are trying to commit suicide because of the working standards. Oh my God. And then they jump out the window, so they place nets around the factories so they don't die. People commit suicide in these factories. None of that will exist. So you're saying, uh, so this is another very interesting point, Sheikh, about uh, limited liability. That, yes. I think that's that's the, what the you guys call it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, 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 the idea of being on the hook. Yes. And, uh, and so the, what you're sketching out is that uh, under an Islamic context, we would, ha we would go back to the era where we didn't have limited liability corporations and we would yeah. have full liability. Yes. And you'd be fully on the hook yes. uh, for things. Um, now, again, I'm, this is a live question that I continue to think about. But one, uh, one argument against that could be that, again, it, uh, having limited liability uh, gives um, I get a benefit of two things. One is it allows you to build uh, institutions for the long term and that don't 
part with an individual when he dies. And then the second thing is, it, again, it correlated with this huge increase in, uh, I guess, risk-taking and productivity, etc., etc. Um, How I, I would respond to that is with, reg with regard to productivity. In Islam, absolute productivity is never the goal. Mm. So that's where... Uh, where like Wahil Halak in his book, The Impossible State, correctly advocates that Islam is not compatible with the concept of a modern state. Because the concept of a modern state and a corporation is growth. Mm. In Islam, as I said, it's what we would refer to as the natural order of economy. Mm. It's not absolute growth. So therefore, humans are responsible for um, even corporations. For instance, where corporations undermine sure sure everything so I they enter area, tribal areas and finish off tribes and the way people live islam would leave people as they are yeah and this is why islam is not desired as a, as a way of life by so many capitalists even muslims in yeah. places like pakistan where they are educated in the west they cannot understand they will just simply say oh the mulvis is against Modernity, hmm. but it's not as simple as modernity yeah. and Islam. The answer goes more into ethics and morality and absolute growth. For instance, Islam would not advocate the building of a nuclear bomb. And that shocks so many Pakistanis because they think having a nuclear weapon is like the best thing Pakistan has because it's a deterrent against India. But let's use logic. India using its nuclear weapons on Pakistan would only harm itself. So even if Pakistan didn't have a nuclear weapon and India dropped a nuclear weapon on Pakistan, the blowback of the air, the environmental damage will all go back onto the Indian population also. So nuclear weapons are something Muslims should never advocate, mm. even as a deterrent. So for instance, the illegal entity of Israel today has a nuclear weapon. We know it has nuclear warheads. No war is waged on it like it was on Saddam Hussein in 2003 and he had no nuclear weapons. But it has nuclear weapons. The Muslims do not need nuclear weapons because if those uh, Zionists drop nuclear weapons on Palestinians or surrounding areas, the air, the contaminated air will only enter the occupied sure. land, the occupied yeah. Palestine. So Islam, from its overarching, over, uh, its view of the world, has never advocated absolute growth economically or things like nuclear weapons. Absolute destruction. There's this underlying tension here, which where we've got this modern state, right? And this is a, this is a very new conception. We didn't really have these a few hundred years ago, and right now. And again, nuclear warfare is an example of this where the people who are not following the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, let's say, are behaving in a certain way. And this world is a small place. And if they're not following the rules and they're winning, then if Muslims continue to, quote unquote, not follow the, quote unquote, follow the rules, we could end up just falling way behind. Do you see what I'm getting at? So, the, so what the, I'm saying is, like, let's say they've decided actually the interest-based system, capitalist system, growth at all costs, they've streaked far ahead, hegemony of, let's say, the West or whoever, and Muslims are, no, no we're not going to do this. In a hundred years' time, there's just such a disparity. See, again, we go back to that, uh, this concept of we are going to get left behind. But let's look, let's examine what are we going to be left behind in. We've had the Industrial Revolution, and then China's attempting... China is emulating the industrial revolution by yeah. damaging the environment, exploiting workers, just pure capitalism. Agreed. And India is attempting the same. Let's look at the Western model and what it has achieved. Why do we have the environmental damage that we have today? Why do we have the proliferation yeah. of nuclear weapons? Are we behind? Are we actually behind? Did Muslims invent... Uh, mustard gas, uh, the different types of gases that kill millions of people. Uh, did Muslims invent all these various chemicals that were utilized even by Saddam Hussein to kill Iranians? The answer is no. So we are not left behind. What we are left behind in is barbarity. 
So the, yeah. uh, what capitalism has brought to the world is absolute barbarity and exploitation. People need a reality check when they come out of their town city centres. We come out of Birmingham town city centre. We leave London town city centre. We take a flight to Malawi. We see underdevelopment, real underdevelopment. Uh, we see authoritarianism where governments are uh, authoritarian over those people. Western-backed governments, people who have uh, military power, military capability given to them by Western corporations. So like the way Britain exported its weapons to Yemen, uh, to Saudi Arabia to use on Yemen. So Saudi Arabia buying uh, one of the, the largest purchases of Western weapon, weaponry yeah. to use on whom? Yemenis. To Yemenis and their own population. The point is that we are not backwards. Even if we, are, even if we remain in a simple lifestyle of uh, camels and dates, those people are better off than the Western capitalism that we have today. And that is where it, the, the issue is a spiritual issue. It goes down to actual spirituality. That, uh, what is good? No, what is what, good yeah. and what is bad? Meaning uh, what is bad is profiteering to the point that you have plunder of those countries and then uh, the displacing of populations, the construction of dams hmm. which remove entire populations uh, that have been settled in those areas for hundreds of years, thousands of years environmental damage where uh, the the growth of the desert because people are over farming due to paying back debts so there is no this concept you have in some egalitarian pakistani people as well in pakistan they think that if pakistan becomes backwards in terms of not modeling itself on the modern state then we are left behind i would say no if, if we worked on preserving the environment and natural economies which is what people have at first hand. Natural economy would entail not measuring eco economic growth through these concepts of GDP. GDP is actually just looking at statistics and numbers, looking at it from what Sayyiduna Ali said, that if people do not produce their own food, their own clothing, uh, then they are a lost, uh, meaning the nation, this nation is doomed to fail. So we should be looking at from the the aspect of the the standard see i could use the word citizen even the word citizen is for the state but mm. from the standard of the average person that is he receiving enough food and clothing and these type of things fascinating so sheikh in a way i think what you're arguing for is to say that rather than playing the dirty game that is being played we need to play the, the game that is ethical and and actually it's a war of ideas really because the way to get other people to stop doing what they're doing is not to you know play the same game and be more powerful than them and overcome them from 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 might but actually it's the game of ideas and that's how you change them absolutely so that's why i refer to it as the intellectual intifada mm. It's an intifada, but it's intellectual. And just to add to that, Muslims in these areas, for instance, becoming capitalists, their father or grandfather may have bought two homes or three homes, and now what they are doing, placing those homes under HMOs. They move out to better affluent areas, and they leave behind drug addicts in those homes. Mm. But they capitalize, so the government pays out I don't know how much yeah. money the government pays. Sure. They capitalize, they live in other areas. They have no concern about the, uh, the new communities that are being formed in these areas. There's no concern because that is the, the mindset has become like the host people, the host country. That's on a micro level. So now let's take that to a macro level of world economy. If on a micro level we can become capitalists who just look for their own gain with no concern for the community, no concern for humans, no concern, no concern for environment, no concern for actual real things, then on a macro level we become like this also. So countries like Dubai who advocate that they have sophisticated themselves, they have no technology of their own. They import all Western technology to construct Dubai. Mm. The, the Dubai people themselves cannot construct the cities that they've constructed and even then they they are being scammed because the largest 
tower in the world, Burj Khalifa, doesn't even have a drainage and gutter system. And every day, uh, hundreds of Indian and Pakistani and Bengali workers have to come and take tons and tons of excrement out. So those capitalists living in the buildings are doing excrement on a daily basis. And then the working people who are treated like slaves mm. are taking tons and tons of excrement and taking it out to the deserts because these capitalists who are running the country could not even build a decent drainage system with all the millions that they have. That's the world that we live in. That's the reality. It's like having excrement covered with a nice piece of cloth. So you go into the depth of it, it's rubbish. London City, fine example. Mm. Outwardly, everyone is capitalizing and making so much money. But go into the depths of London City and you'll find it's one of the, 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 the most toxic places in the world, meaning how many thousands of homeless people, mm. uh, how many murders and how many uh, killings and drug addicts and all these problems. Yeah, so it's an even, ethical even, and moral yeah. problem. No, I agree agree with that, Sheikh. Um, Sheikh, I wanted to um, uh, I wanted to wrap up with something else, but I, I want to dig into this idea of uh, the state a little bit more because I was reading a I was listening to a podcast by a guy called Balaji who talks about he's a founder of Coinbase. So you might not like him because he founded a cryptocurrency brokerage company. But anyway, he's he's a very bright guy. He's a professor now somewhere. And he uh, postulizes this ne network state because he says that the nation state is fragmenting and breaking off because before you had uh, people coagulating around geographies and then you had a government and you, know, you had the, uh, the, the might of that government that makes it all happen. However, now we've got social media, we've got di the digital age and actually people spend most of the time in the, in the digital space and they find each other independent of the geography so they might hang out actually the majority of the time on these in these online communities and they might then start saying actually we want to move to a certain area where all of us are moving and and that's where you see these new communities forming around certain ideas and and so his and, and I'm butchering his overall thesis but the the thrust of the thesis is that the networks the the nation state it's probably on its way out and you're going to have some new thing that's going to end up replacing it. I'd love to hear your reaction to that and also your, uh, your proposal for what, what is an Islamic equivalent. I wouldn't say, I won't call it a state because I presume that's not the right thing to call it, but what is the Islamic equivalent? So uh, what you are referring to is an evolutionary process. So even with money, for instance, we've had people moving from metal to current uh, system and then from the current system to digital currency. It seems like an evolutionary process. The nation state was born out of empire, ancient empires, and then from the, what we have now, people want world government. So for nation states becoming world governments, you have the EU and then you have NAFTA and all these various uh, coalitions. Mm. So th what some researchers presume is that the world is entering the phase of world government. And what he's stating is that it's being affected from what I hear from you, that it's being affected by uh, social media, which will lead to something else. I the, think he's saying that you're gonna have like a complete disregard of let's say the USA, China, India, Pakistan, whatever, and you're gonna have people who really care about, I don't know, they're really like uh, liberal, for example, and they will just say, okay, we're gonna buy some plot of land in Texas, and we're all going to move that. Well, the way nation states function is that they'll clamp down on that mm. and place some type of laws yeah. and, and limitations. So it may be, uh, it may be uh, cut away at the roots from before it even begins. Yeah. But for Islam as an alternative, again, it goes back to the foundational core is aqidah, belief. And what I mean by that is tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and actual spirituality, real spirituality, what we refer to as tasawwuf, but embodying tasawwuf, embodying dhikrullah, embodying tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and then the risala of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in terms of the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That is the actual solution. How will Muslims move from the current nation state model to um, 
something else, meaning the caliphate or the return of the caliphate. That is something yet to be seen. And something, inshallah, that in the future generations will see, inshallah. Ta'ala. Inshallah. Sheikh, uh, I want to wrap up. What's your, uh, what's your thoughts about the future? And what's your advice to people listening, to, to me, to us, to all of us, in terms of how, how we can do what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants? So embodying something known as ubudiyah. What is ubudiyah? Servitude to Allah. So as a slave of Allah, the earth is the banquet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I am the slave of Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has guaranteed me my rizq. I was born naked and I have clothes. Meaning at the time of my birth, I didn't plan to have clothes, but Allah gave me clothes. So rizq is something guaranteed. Rather than running after what is guaranteed in a way that we become covetous for wealth and material gain, let's realize our ubudiyah servitude to Allah. When we realize our ubudiyah servitude to Allah, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will also give us material success. Like the Sultan Muhammad al-Fatih, when he conquered uh, Constantinople, he constructed a citadel which if you look at in terms of secular, a secular point of view, that citadel could not have been constructed within that time period, time frame that he actually constructed that citadel. It was only done because he realized his ubudiyah servitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Today people talk about Islam being victorious or Islam being materialistically successful, but they don't talk about how those Muslims were, they had realized their ubudiyah servitude to Allah. Imagine the likes of Abu Ubaidah bin al-Jarrah radiallahu anhu, the conqueror of Syria, who only had one pair of clothes. He conquered Syria, the whole of Syro-Palestine, and then he would be absent one day a week. And the people complained and they said to Sayyiduna Umar radiallahu anhu, your governor is here six days a week, he's absent one day. So Sayyiduna Umar went to see him. And he said, yes, on the seventh day, I only have one pair of clothes and I wash it and I leave it to hang to dry. And then I cannot go out. Allahu so these were the type of people who carried out the conquest, not people who were uh, out there to conquer the world for material gain. But at the same time, they distributed wealth and they carried out social justice. So young people who were ideologically charged with ISIS, they didn't carry out social justice. They didn't carry out... Uh, how Islam should be embodied when they imprisoned people and placing them in cages. None of this is established in Islam. Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Siddiq even prohibited the display of decapitated heads. It's prohibited. It's in the Sunan of Al-Bayhaqi. So uh, embodying our servitude is basing our lives on the way of the companions, Ali Muridwan, our worldview. It's what some have called a Qur'ani worldview. Quranic worldview, but it's, it's greater than that because he has the sunnah of the Prophet So embodying Islam like the companions alayhi muridwan. Barakallahu feek, Shaykh. This has been a real pleasure. Uh, I've, I've learned a lot. I've, I've really enjoyed it and, uh, and I hope you too have also enjoyed it. If you'd uh, like to give your thoughts, your comments, your questions perhaps for the Shaykh, and we can uh, come back, inshallah, make pilgrimage to Birmingham once more. And uh, and sit with the Sheikh and uh, and get those questions answered as well. Barakallahu feek, Sheikh. It's been a real pleasure. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullah.